0: Um, Take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 2. And by the way, if you haven't been baptized, Um, yet. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we have another baptism service coming up, likely at the beginning of December. We already have a few people who are um, in the process of being prepared to be baptized. So if that's you, please uh, make sure you connect with us. We'd love for you to be a part of that if you've yet to be baptized. And also, just for your information, we have three other people being baptized in the second service. So just, again, something just to rejoice in and praise the Lord for. A baptism uh, is… unique. As Pastor Brian said, there's that outward display of an inward reality. A baptism is, is symbolic, and it's interesting to think about the, the symbolism in baptism, and it, it's kind of layered, to be honest with you. So, the idea of going under the water, it carries with it this idea of dying with Christ. Our lives are hidden in Christ. We're buried with Him in death and brought out of the water to new life. That's the the imagery there. But that idea of dying, it's layered as well. You see, the Scriptures teach us that the idea of the death of Christ involves the very judgment of God. In fact, 1 Peter 3, verse 20 and 21 says there's a correspondence between baptism and Noah's ark and the flood. In other words, the Flood and the Ark prefigure Christian baptism in a unique way. It teaches us something about what's happened to us in our own salvation. The water symbolizes a death to our old self. It symbolizes the cleansing work of God to forgive us of our sins. But it also symbolizes that someone has been judged in our place. They have been immersed in the waters of judgment. Noah and his family, if you can think of that story of Noah and the ark, were brought safely through the waters of God's judgment upon the earth. But the rest of humanity, consider this, defined, as Genesis 6 tells us, by great wickedness where every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were on only evil continually. They were wiped out by the flood, the judgment of God. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that even then God was patient. I love that. is so helpful to remember this morning as we think about the topic of judgment It is a weighty topic, and yet at the same time we need to be reminded of God's patience the kindness of God. Peter says that God is still patient, even at this very moment, not wanting, not wishing any should perish, but that all, listen to this, should reach repentance. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, as Pastor Trevor um, preached last week for us, Paul ends this section by reminding us that it's because of our hard and impenitent heart that we are, listen to these words, storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You can think of it like this humanity, in one sense, is busy having a picnic at the base of the Hoover Dam. And the Hoover Dam is cracked. It's leaking, and all the while, more and more water is being stored up. It's being piled up. It's being held back by the dam. And here is humanity at the base of the dam having a picnic, thinking everything is fine, thinking everything's going to be okay, while that great flood of God's judgment is piling up and waiting to burst forth upon them. But you see, God's desire is that humanity flees that wrath. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God longs for us to run to Him to find freedom from His very judgment. But in order for us to flee, we must first understand why it's deserved. We, we, we say it like this all the time around here, right? In order to understand the good news of the gospel, we first have to understand the bad news. In fact, it's through the lens of the bad news of the gospel that the good news truly is understood to be good news. And as we look at chapter 2, this is a chapter that is filled with judgment. Paul is is busy proving that the human race is guilty, Jew and Gentile alike. They stand guilty before God. And it's imperative that we, we understand as we look at this text this morning why God's judgment is both deserved, listen but why it's actually earned. Here's the way that Paul says this to us in verse 6 through 16. Let's read it together. It says this, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God, we pray now that You would help us to understand the severity of Your judgment and the beauty of Your gospel. We pray, Father, that we would find refuge in Jesus Christ and that we would rejoice that He has taken the judgment we deserved upon Himself, and we have been given freedom and life in Him. We pray for those in here who do not yet know that freedom and do not know that life that, Lord, You administer to their hearts even today in a powerful way that they might come to know and believe in this truth. We pray this all in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. I want to just continue on with the outline that was given to us last week and that is this, if you want to avoid God's judgment, there are some certain certain things you must do or you must understand. First, if you want to avoid God's judgment, you must have an accurate view of your contribution, your your contribution towards that judgment that you deserve. In other words, how have we earned this? Again, like I said in verse 5, Paul is reminding us that we are storing up wrath. Apart from Jesus Christ, humanity is storing up wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath. It's being accumulated, and it's being piled up. So the natural question is, how exactly are we storing up this wrath? Well, the answer comes in verse 6. Listen to what Paul says. He will render to each one according to his works. God will judge every one of us according to our works. He will give us what we deserve. And here's what Paul will later tell us, that the wages of sin is death. Verse 6 is intended to be read alongside. The way that that Paul has structured this in the original language, it's, it's intended to be read alongside and understood alongside verse 11. Look at what it says, very short. For God shows no partiality. Everyone is going to face this same reality. They will be judged by their works. And his point, remember, is to prove that both Jew and Gentile alike are guilty before God, No one can claim their ethnicity to get away from God's judgment. Everyone will stand there and be judged essentially the same way by their works. This forces us to consider the role of works in our lives, whether we're a Christian or a non Christian here this morning. Regardless of who we are, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, We need to understand that God shows no partiality. The scales of justice are the same for us all. Now, here he begins to describe two kinds of deeds in verses 6 through 11 that expose two kinds of desires that lead to two kinds of destinies. And he links these all together. They're to be understood as a packaged deal, so to speak. And I want to frame these things in in simply three questions just to help us really reflect upon the depths of these truths this morning. First question is this Are my deeds determining or displaying? Are my deeds determining or displaying? The Bible places great importance on our works Old Testament and New Testament but never in terms of earning a righteous or a right standing before God. Paul has already told us that a right standing, a justification, a righteousness that makes us right with God only comes through faith. Works he tells us here, they either determine your judgment or they display your salvation. Let me put it like this. Your works never contribute to your salvation. They only contribute to your judgment. So, what exactly is the role of works in our lives? Well, verse 7, look at it with me. He says this, To those who by patience in well-doing, that is doing good works, so to speak, seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. Again, verse 7 is supposed to be read alongside verse 10, so look at that verse with me. But glory and honor and peace for everyone, notice these words, who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Here he's getting at the heart of of works in the life of a believer. What does this mean and what does this look like for the believer? We can see here that the gift or the reward of eternal life is only given to those who manifest good works consistently in their life consistently doing well, doing good. In other words, their good works display the reality of the salvation that they have received by the grace of God. Their good works, and their consistent good works, they reveal, they display a heart that is regenerate, that's been born again, and again, only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their deeds display this beautiful reality of God's saving work in their life. It's just it's so important to understand, listen, that as a Christian, your works never earn your salvation. They have no ability to do that, to earn you this righteous status with God, but they do speak volumes about the salvation that you have received from God. They expose that. They express that. They display that. You've likely heard the phrase, if there is no fruit, there is no what? Root. It's what James says in James chapter 2, that faith without works is dead. And he goes on to tell us, listen, if you say you have faith but you have no works, he's like, you're kidding yourself. Your life needs to display the reality of your faith. There are far too many people in the Christian world who will often cling to a a, a simple prayer that they prayed one day, claiming that as long as they've prayed a prayer, as long as they've said the magic formula, as long as they've invited Jesus into their heart then they're fine with God regardless of how they live. I I can't tell you how many conversations I have, even with Christian parents whose kids at a very young age made a profession of faith in the Lord and then went on to never live a life surrendered to the Lord, and yet they cling to that as the hope for their child. But the Bible speaks very differently about our salvation. The Bible says, you will know them by their fruit." Just because you profess Christ does not mean you possess Christ. The way you know you possess Christ is that your life, your heart, first of all, has been so radically transformed by the grace of God that your life begins to manifest the evidence of that, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, good works and good deeds. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We we often read verses 8 and 9 because we love them so much and we ought to. Paul says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. He's already told us that in Romans. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. There you go. He says it even more clearly than he's saying to us in Romans right now. Why is that that, that it can't be by works so that no one can boast? In other words, not one of us is going to get to the, the, the gates of heaven, and God says, why should I let you in? And you're saying, well, just look at all the awesome things I've done. <laughs> like, of course you should let me in. I mean, I deserve to be there. Aren't you impressed? We often leave off Ephesians 2.10, but it's so important to, to see the connection between our faith and works. Listen to what he says, for we are his workmanship— created in Christ Jesus, listen to this, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can hear Paul saying, listen, you are saved for good works, not by good works. In fact, it is, according to this passage, God's good work which produces our good works. Again, the problem is that apart from Christ we have no truly good works. That's what Paul wants to lay out for us in this section of Scripture. No good works in the sense that they're not pleasing to God. They're not acceptable to God. They cannot earn a righteous status with God. They may be good on a worldly level from a human perspective. Praise God for His common grace, whereby People, even who do not know God, can still do, relatively speaking, good things for other people. But but when it comes to earning an acceptable status with God, they bear no significance. They carry no weight at all. In fact, even the good deeds they think are good are simply accumulating more and more wrath for the day of wrath. Look at how Paul lays this out in verse 8 and 9. He says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. There's no partiality with God here. Just the language there is is so abrupt and it is jolting that they do not obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness. They do evil. He's describing humanity apart from Jesus. You see, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, everyone who relies upon works for salvation is simply like a rich man who's making regular contributions to his stock portfolio, and he's accumulating, he's storing up wealth. But humanity, according to the Word of God, is making regular contributions to our works portfolio, and we are instead storing up wrath upon wrath for the day of wrath. It's ironic, isn't it? In the end, some people are going to stand before God and they're going to try to present themselves as worthy of eternal life and intimacy with God for all of eternity. And they're going to stand there and they're going to pull out, you know, pull out their, their diamonds and they say, God, look at the beauty of this diamond I have to offer you. And God's going to look at that and say, well, that's just cubic zirconium. <laughs> he said, look at this gold I bring to you. Look how beautiful and valuable it is. God's gonna say that's that's nothing but iron pyrite. That's fool's gold. What you have to offer me is of zero eternal value. It's not worth anything. If we are relying on our works, we're instead determining, listen, we're determining our judgment. Listen, the truth and the beauty of the gospel is that you are saved by works. Listen, loved one, this is so important. You are saved by works, just not your works, the works of Jesus Christ. You're saved by trusting, believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and by receiving the perfect righteousness, all of the good works that He accomplished that you could never accomplish, that He then turns and He credits to your account, Christians, loved ones, just, just think about this for a moment. Our good deeds are not evident of our great ability, but instead are evidence of God's great mercy. Amen? That's it. But how are these deeds determined to be good or evil? That's that's a kind of a logical question. How do we know they're good or evil? Well, Paul answers that next for us in this section. It's because of the desires that lie behind them. So here's the the second question I want you to wrestle with this morning. Are my desires for God's glory or for my glory? Again, verses 8 and 9, you'll notice what he says here, but for those who are self seeking. That contrasts with those in verse 7 who, in well doing, seek for glory and honor and Im- immortality. And you see, what Paul is saying to us is this our works actually reveal our hearts. Works are always viewed as a, an outward expression of what the person is deep down. Works reveal the reality of our relationship with God, that the fruit of our lives, you, you know, fruit and root, let me say it like this, the fruit of our lives reveal the root of our loves, our affections, our desires, and our passions. You see, our works, they help us identify whose kingdom we are trying to build, whose glory and honor we are trying to promote. And Paul's point is that humanity, apart from God's intervening grace in the gospel, is totally and completely self absorbed and self promoting at the very core of their being. Their works actually demonstrate this. They do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. Remember, remember how Paul uses those words back in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18. He says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, at the heart of their unrighteousness and their refusal to obey the truth is, again, it's that pressing down, like like that coiled spring upon God Himself. It is a refusal to honor God as God. It is a de-godding of God again, we see that Paul pulls us back into this idea that at the end of the day, all of our immorality is about our idolatry. This is a worship disorder through and through that we cannot ignore. You see, what what does this look like in the life of an unbeliever? Well, Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, he kind of lays out for us this list of what it means to live for our own glory. Paul talks about seeking the things which are above, not the things which are below, and then he goes on to describe what it looks like, again, to seek those things that are below. And he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, he says. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. They defined you because you were an unbeliever. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." He describes this list for us, which we can all look at it and relate to in in a variety of different ways, but he's he's holding us up with this earthly kind of living, and he's wanting us to look at it in light of verse 7. So look at that again. To those who by patience and well-doing, listen to their heart, listen to the desires of the heart here, they seek for glory and honor and immortality, and those are the people to whom he will give eternal life. You say, well, isn't that just works-based salvation? I mean, they're seeking glory and honor and immortality, no, this, this is revealing their loves. It's revealing the affections of their hearts. You see, th- their trust is in God and it's not in their own achievement. Their works are driven by a unique and defining motivation. Their minds are not set on material prosperity or possessions, it's not set on happiness or pleasure and comfort and ease. It's not even set on being religious or doing religious things, per se. No, they are set on glory and honor and immortality. But you see, these expressions, they actually reveal God's purpose for humanity. This gets us back to the Garden of Eden. When God created humanity, He created us, in essence, to live for glory and honor, and He created us to live forever. We were created to both share in God's glory – consider this, church – and to image God's glory to all of creation, to know Him and to make Him known, to give honor to God and to long for honor from God. This should be the heart of every follower of Jesus Christ, to hear the words, right, well done, good and faithful servant. And we were created to live forever not apart from God, but an intimate relationship with the one who created us. To seek immortality is to long to live forever in the presence of the Creator, to enter forever into the joy of our Master. The bent of their lives in verse 7 here is toward heavenly things. That's what Colossians 3 describes as well, to seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. These are qualities that, that by the way, they come only from a close walk with Jesus Christ. These desires that are given to us are not natural, but they're supernatural, they're desires that are planted in our hearts by God Himself. But, but, listen, church, but they also must be cultivated by us through the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us, which is why Paul tells the believers in the church in Colossae to put off what is earthly in you. Cultivate these desires. Put to death, he says, what is earthly in you. Put to death all of these sins And He commands them to put on very different qualities, the qualities and and characteristics of God Himself. Put on as God's chosen ones, He says, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then listen to this. This is the most important part. And whatever you do, listen, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, seeking His glory, seeking His honor above all things. He ends on this issue of desire in our hearts. So, let me encourage you to ask yourself the question again, is my desire for God's glory or my glory? You say, I'm not really sure. Well, look at the deeds of your life. Look at the pattern of your behavior. Be honest with yourself. Assess the the deeds, the good works in your life. Look at why you do what you do. Ask this question, "Do, do I want to live so that people praise me and honor me? Am I looking for praise from the world? Am I getting my joy and satisfaction from the things of this earth, or am I truly finding them in the Lord Jesus Christ and what God has done for me? And if you find that the pattern of your life is pointing to a disordered and distorted desires in your heart, listen, the road to reconciliation begins first with the recognition of where you're at, and then with repentance that God is kindly leading you towards. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. We need an accurate view of our contribution because… Of where it's going to ultimately lead us. Ask this third question Is my destiny eternal wrath or eternal life? There's no greater question you can ask this morning. Is my future eternal life as is described in verse 7? You say, What is that eternal life? Depicted as here, well, he, He tells us in verse 10, glory and honor, those things that we have been seeking are the things we will receive. And peace, peace, that's what this immortality will bring to us. It will bring us into an everlasting peace with God. It's the words we long to hear one day, enter into the joy of your master. where we will be experiencing the unending love of God in its fullness. But the results of this self-seeking individual are also put on display for us to see. This this self-seeking, self-absorbed person who is hostile toward God and and living this rebellious lifestyle, this is what Paul is is warning us about. This is what he wants us to take note of primarily in this passage. He's warning us about the judgment that this person will receive, And He's telling us that you you won't just, in the end, when you stand before God, you won't just get what you deserve, you'll get what you've earned. How many people claim, I'm a good person? I can't tell you how many people I, I speak with who will acknowledge they're sinners but will still declare that they're actually a good person. They know their life is sin is sinful. They know they're a sinner, but they have this really hard time, and I think we all do too in our flesh. We have this hard time acknowledging that we're actually not good. God's judgment in the end will not be eternal life but eternal Death defined here, did you notice this? As tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, wrath and fury. This, by the way, loved ones, is why the gospel is so necessary. This is why our evangelism matters. This is why there is an urgency and a pleading for repentance and faith. This is why we sit with people who we love and people we meet and we look them in the eye and we share the truth of the gospel and we sometimes do so with tears in our eyes because we know what awaits all those who do not bow the knee to Jesus we see what awaits them. We see them living for the fleeting pleasures of this world. And maybe this is you today. Maybe you're here today and you're you're living for the moment. You're living for the fleeting pleasures of sin in this world. And what God is wanting to arrest you with today is in the end, you will get what you have earned. And the decision to follow Jesus must be made in this life. This is why. This is why there's urgency, loved ones. This is why we must be bold and courageous with the gospel. This is why we must pray fervently for the souls of people. This is why we must persist and not give up. This is why we must stay on mission as a church. Because of what's at stake. You only get this life to make this decision. When you die and stand before Jesus, it will be too late. The decision will already have been made by you. There will be for all eternity. Listen, listen, this is is heavy, but this is so important to embrace. There is no reconciliation with God for all of eternity if you die in unbelief. There will be no entering into the joy of the Master. There will be no experience of having every tear wiped away, no experience of having all your pain and sorrow erased, no experience of the unending satisfaction of being in intimate communion with the eternal God. There will only be unending weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Jesus says. There will only be eternal pain and eternal regret. There will only be everlasting tribulation and distress. Such is the destiny of all those who exchange the glory of the Creator for the glory of creation, who would not live for the glory of God and honor Him as God. But perhaps this morning you're still unconvinced. You don't see yourself the way God sees you. If you want to avoid God's judgment, secondly, you need an accurate view of your culpability. Verses twelve through sixteen, he talks to us about the law. And remember, the issue at stake here is guilt, it's culpability. Let me give you a bit of a definition of, of culpability or being culpable. It's it's this culpability or being culpable is a measure of the degree to which a person can be held morally or legally responsible for action and inaction. From a legal perspective, it describes a degree of one's blameworthiness in the commission of a crime or offense. And again, Paul is putting the human race on trial, and his accusation is, all are guilty. Now, the previous point dealt with the role of works in our lives, but maybe you're wondering what determines what works are good and bad, what motives are good and bad. Isn't that somewhat subjective, or maybe that's culturally determined, and so it shifts over time and based on geography. But you see, the question of culpability implies this objective standard, and if that's true, what is that standard? And here's the question behind that question, how do we know that standard? Well, to demonstrate the culpability of humanity, Paul draws our attention to the law of God that's expressed in two ways. First, he describes here in verse 12 and 13, the law, uh, the Mosaic law. He says, for all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The Jews were very familiar with the Mosaic law. It was that law that God gave His people as they wandered in the wilderness. Moses delivered it to them. It's the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Torah. The Gentiles who didn't have it, they all still sinned without it, Paul makes clear. They will perish just like those who had the law but disobeyed the law, did not keep the law. And his point here is that each one will be judged by the standard given to them. The Jews, remember, the Jews thought that just by having the law meant that they were fine with God. It's like the Christian who says, Well, I have a Bible, I go to church. verse 13 indicates that the law had a purpose. The law was to be a teacher, teaching people about God's perfect character and God's perfect standard, teaching them about their inability to meet that standard. It's not just the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law. You say, who's that? Well, nobody. Nobody meets the standard. It's like a high jump bar that everybody's trying to jump over, but they're not even knocking the bar down. They're just jumping under the bar every time. The bar was set to a place that could never be, humanly speaking, attained. That's God's law. And and the standard is perfect obedience. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Nobody obeys the law perfectly, but as a result, those who knew God's law will be judged by that law. The the law reveals God's perfect standard, and it also reveals our inability to meet that standard, and so the Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic law, they're off the hook, I guess, then, right? What about the person who's never read the Bible? They never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Nope, they're not off the hook. Look at what he says in verse 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, and their consciences also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. His point is that Gentiles who actually uphold aspects of God's law, they actually do those things that are written in the law, not knowing about that written law, they reveal this second expression of God's law, the moral law. The law of God that is embedded in the human heart. It it is the moral imprint of God in whose image man is made. And we see this all around. Right across the globe, regardless of culture or creed, people acknowledge certain behaviors as wrong. You can go almost anywhere in the world, and everybody acknowledges lying is wrong. Everybody acknowledges stealing is wrong and murder is wrong. And they're showing in that the law of God that's written on their hearts. And so we have two witnesses so far that Paul has laid out for us that condemn us. We have the witness of creation that God has given us, and we have the the witness of the conscience. They both bear witness to the existence of God and the character of God. And the conscience is built, this built-in mechanism that either accuses us of sin or excuses, justifies our sin. The fact that we have a conscience that either accuses or excuses us is evidence that we are culpable before the God of creation who Himself etched that very law into every human heart, which is why verse 16 is so important. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is a great parallel to this. On that day, Paul says here, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus… Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, on that day, everyone will see their contributions and everybody will see their culpability. Apart from Christ, the secrets of our hearts will be completely exposed. They'll be revealed. We will see on that day, every human being will see clearly in that moment our willful, apart from Christ, and our willful suppression of the truth about God and our sinful rebellion against Him. And apart from Christ, every human being will stand condemned and will understand they have no defense. The verdict will be clear and unarguable, guilty, deserving of God's judgment. Our deeds and our desires will lead to our destiny, regardless of race, culture, or creed. And I I want to end on this, this thought, because I think it's really important. Listen, one of the reasons we don't come to Jesus so often is because of our shameful secrets, isn't it? A desire to keep hiding who we are and what we're doing, that because no one knows, we somehow think we're going to be safe and secure, that we can keep wearing the masks that we walk around in. But but this text reminds us that God knows, and one day God will bring to light every secret, everything that we have felt was hidden, at least for a time and in this life, will be fully exposed, being brought to light. How foolish of us, how sad of us to think that we can keep these things hidden. Or some of us in our shame believe, listen, that God couldn't love us if He really knew us. And it's ironic, isn't it, that those secrets, the unwillingness to reveal them now, will ultimately be revealed in the end? How much better to reveal those secrets now in repentance, to believe in the gospel today and receive forgiveness and freedom, than to have them revealed later in the presence of God only to receive judgment. What joy to know that God sees and knows you. Listen, this is so important. He sees and He knows you, all of you, all of the things that you've ever done. He sees it, Even the things that you are most deeply ashamed of, He sees it, guess what, and He loves you still. He loves you enough to die for you. He is patient in not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Let Jesus take the judgment in your place. If the dam of God's wrath is to break, let it break upon Jesus. And rejoice that you have found refuge in the ark of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, if this is your reality today, if this is who you are in Christ, and you know that you have, by God's grace, avoided God's wrath, you have an opportunity to live for His praise and to proclaim His glory and to proclaim His gospel to all the earth. By patience and well-doing, to seek glory and honor and immortality, looking to the eternal life that awaits. Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray that you would help us in this. We confess, Father, that so often we are not seeking you. We are seeking glory for ourselves, and yet we see the call upon our hearts. We see what we have been saved from and what we have been liberated to. And we pray, Father, that You and Your kindness and Your mercy would continue to grip our hearts, yes, with the bad news of the gospel, but God, in light of the bad news, may we become ever enamored with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is hope to be saved from the wrath that is to come, hope that is found in Jesus and in Him alone. We give You praise, we give You honor, and we give You all the glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.